By now, no doubt you have discovered that though the instructions are actually quite simple, the actual practice is very difficult for some reason. Tonight I want to talk about those reasons a little bit. There comes often in practice different energies to our practice, different uh, states of mind, different qualities of mind, and some of them are very difficult to deal with. Some of them are very difficult to welcome, to work with. They come as energy in the body, energy in the mind, uh, attitudes, and they obstruct our practice. They bother us, they distract us, they confuse us, they put us to sleep, they just numb us out so that we can't even remember the instruction or what to do or how to do or what's going on or anything. We just get quite confused, quite lost, quite uh, overwhelmed by them. It's helpful to uh, begin to identify these qualities of mind, these visitors, that come to the mind at their own invitation because much of practice is learning how to recognize them and how to work with them. Because, let's face it, practice isn't only when we have good mindfulness, good tranquility, good energy, and, you know, uh, good concentration. That's not the only time we practice. That's the easy part of practice. You know, and it's something that we hope for. But let's face it, it's not even 50% of the time that we feel like, hey, this is pretty effortless. You know, we say effortless energy. Good luck. <laughs> you know, maybe. You know? So the rest of the time that we're here in the hall, that we're walking, that we're eating, that we're, that we're here on retreat and practicing, other stuff is going on. It's not such good energy. It's not so clear. It's not such good mindfulness. We don't feel tranquil. We are pretty restless. We just... Those are all states of mind, conditions, uh, energies in the body and mind that are also the field for practice, for working with. Not just to put our practice on hold until they go by and wait for the good time. So, recognizing that these energies come to practice, come during practice, learning to identify them, get familiar with them, and to develop skills for working with them so that we don't just get derailed every time they make their appearance. As much as we come here with great expectations, great interest, great intention, motivation, even a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge, and a lot of confidence. When these visitors come to the mind, these difficult energies, these obscuring tendencies in the mind, we often don't see them. We don't want to. We don't want to acknowledge even that they're present, that, that, that our practice really isn't so good. So we have to be careful not to judge ourselves or to deny or to resist acknowledging that sometimes 
you know, practice is really terrible. But we're still working with it. The experience is really miserable. But we're still working with it. We're still engaged with it. We're still, you know, trying to arouse energy when we're sleepy and dull. We're trying to cool out a little bit when we're really restless. We're trying to let go of our anger and our jealousy and our fear. And You know, that's not what we think is good practice, but that really is good practice. Working with difficult stuff. These visitors to the mind, these tendencies, these uh, clouds that come across the mind, they are deeply conditioned responses to certain stimulus that we experience in our life. And so they have become, over the course of our life or lives, very powerful mental habits of denial, of fear, of reaction of one sort or another. And in fact, in this practice of awakening, what is it that we're awakening to? We're really awakening to the full range of who and what we are, to wholeness, what it would be to be whole, to, to willingly be able to claim, to accept and claim every part of ourself, all those wonderful, positive, spiritual uh, qualities, and all those other ones that we also have, to be willing and able to say, yeah, that's present in me at times also. And so the practice of awakening is really confronting all that we have avoided, all that we have denied, all that we fear, all that we've hidden from, as well as those other qualities that we hope to cultivate more of. And so, of course, we're going to have a lot of discovering of times and places we've been hurt, our woundedness, where we've been lost, confused, when we've wanted and not gotten. We're going to discover these places in our practice. We're going to discover old memories of hurt and fear and pain and desires that went unmet. This is the nature of the practice. So if that's what you're seeing today, good. Your practice is improving and it's getting better. Really what we're doing in confronting our patterns of reaction to and accepting this and rejecting that and this is okay for me to experience and feel, and that isn't okay for me to experience and feel. In confronting these patterns that we are, really in looking deeply at our personality, we're going to see um, who we think we are. We're also going to see who we think we aren't. And they're both going to be apparent equally. They're going to be equally visible as what is. And so, we're going to see the flip side of all that we claim to be. And so, if we're, very, if we're a very confident and competent and energetic person, and that's who we show to the world, you can bet when you get into practice, you're going to see a very doubtful, fearful, incompetent, tired, unenergetic side of you. That's hard to accept. 
That's really hard to acknowledge, to open to, to feel. And we put up all sorts of defenses against feeling that, against recognizing that. We'll go to sleep, we'll get restless, we'll get angry, we'll get frustrated, we'll want something else. We'll doubt practice. We'll doubt our ability to practice. We'll do anything to prevent opening to that, which we do not want to claim. So, in this practice of opening, awakening, we really need to be gentle. We need to be patient. We need to be sensitive to what we feel, who we are, what, what, what comes up, so to speak. Because we have constructed this sense of ourself due to conditions in the past, in growing up. And we have accepted some things and rejected some things. And we've built defenses, psychological, emotional defenses, against feeling certain things. Maybe it wasn't safe to feel them when we were younger. Not safe to feel anger, because somebody would not accept it. Not safe to feel jealous, because, you know, mommy said, you leave his thing alone, or whatever. And so, when we were little, we said, Phew, I guess I'm not supposed to feel that. I don't feel that. I don't feel jealous. Who, me? No. And yet, when we start cutting through our defenses, when the power of our mind develops, we're going to see that indeed, oh, we do have these little buggers in there. You know, this little kid that's jealous and angry and whatever. So we need to be careful. We need to be gentle. We need to be allowing. We need to be patient with all of our trips, so to speak. But we also need to be firmly committed to this path. We need to be decisively resolute in our intention to persevere, to just keep going and looking, you know, just to keep the uh, practice going, to keep the movement happening towards greater opening. And so we really need a fearless energy, a real courage to come in here and sit. And I really appreciate the fact that you do come and sit. It, it, uh, almost every retreat, it amazes me that people actually come in and sit. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, I know it's not pleasant. You know, hey, wait a minute, let's not, let's not fool ourselves. It's not pleasant. It's not like we come in here and say, yippee, I can hardly wait to get in. It's hard. It is really tough. You know, just so you know. And... <laughs> <laughs> I really want to, you know, I appreciate that you come and that you try, that you make the effort. Because it takes courage to come in here, you know, sitting after sitting and keep walking day after day. And look at this shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's really helpful to not judge yourself and to not judge your practice by what you see because we're going to see all of this stuff and that's not who you are that's not all that you are but if you judge yourself and your practice by the moment's experience of these difficult things 
You'll be out of here in a minute. You'll just say, ah, I've had enough. We get caught by that perception of our anger, our frustration, our pain, our fear, or whatever, and we just say, that's me, can't handle it. So don't, I say don't judge yourself. On the other hand, I know all of you are judging yourself. We all do. That's part of our conditioning. And it's important to acknowledge that. In our culture, in any culture growing up, we have to learn how to analyze, evaluate situations, people, events, choices, decisions that we have to make. And we have to learn how to make decisions. And, may, and the more skillful we are at analyzing and discriminating and picking and choosing and seeing what's better and best, the more skillfully we can live our life, the more successfully we can live our life. And that's the way to get on in, in family and society and growing up in a career and all that. And so we need to learn how to make choices. And that in that process of learning how to make choices, our likes and dislikes that are deeply conditioned get kind of instituted in patterns of making decisions, discriminating, saying yes to this, no to that. And so when it comes time to begin to practice and open up to everything equally, being open, receptive, you know, we have to confront our conditioning that says, do this, don't do that. Pick this, don't pick that. This is better than that. Where in the practice it's open to everything equally. Oh, that's a real confront to our conditioning. One of the first Dharma books I read was a book called Beginning to See by Sujata. And it's just a little book of little sayings about insight, meditation. And he said, in one of them, he says, if you want to be wealthy, you have to spend your time making money. If you want to be free, you have to spend your time being mindful. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but you'd have to look at your own life to see. And in our culture, our conditioning is make money, for the most part. Or that's a very strong conditioning that we have. So, in your noticing how much you judge and evaluate and analyze yourself, your practice, other people in the hall, take a minute to just pay respects to your ability to make choices and discriminate and, and, and make wise choices and then put it aside and say, not now. Put aside your, dis your, your judgments and just allow yourself to be with whatever comes up. When we understand the profundity of what it is that the Buddha's teaching points us towards or guides us towards, it isn't just uh, you know, a, a technique to kind of get it together to live comfortably and conveniently. In fact, I don't think any of us would say that what we're doing here is comfortable and convenient. And yet, there's obvious something that the Buddha is pointing to, that this practice is leading us to or directing us to, that is worthy of the effort. So this practice opening, this practice of opening to the unknown, to what it is possible to experience as humans. At times, 
it's going to be unclear. At times we're going to open to that which is fearful, or that which makes us very excited, or that which uh, makes us very curious, or that which uh, makes us very unsure of ourselves. <coughs> and in those openings, when we open to new things, new limits, what is outside of our familiar turf, then sometimes we don't know how to evaluate it. Is this good? Is this bad? Is this good practice? Or is this not good practice? And we often don't know. Many times yogis come in to interviews and they'll say, uh, I say, how's, how's it going? Oh, not very good. Not very good. And I say, well, what does that mean? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, I got a lot of anger and, you know, I'm seeing this and that and, you know, just my mind is, you know, wandering a lot and I catch it and I bring it back and it wanders again and I catch it and there's anger. I say, gee, that sounds pretty good. Sounds like your practice is going all right. And all they want to tell me is their evaluation of it, not knowing that really their practice is good, you know, because they are catching the mind that's wandering. They're seeing their reactions of anger and frustration and disappointment and pain and, you know, depression and that's good practice. You're beginning to see it more clearly. Because these reactions to the unknown, to opening to the unknown, are difficult and because they are going to happen, these visitors are going to come to the mind and because they will arise, we need to be really resolute in our intention in each sitting and each walking to just acknowledge what's actually happening. We also need to to sustain our commitment to the discipline of, you know, getting up at such and such a time and sitting and walking and sitting and walking and just really uh, maintaining our own uh, commitment to the discipline of this work. It's helpful to be, to kind of cultivate an attitude of, uh, I don't really know where it's going, but I'm going to try to find out. Just a, a kind of curiosity. I wonder what will happen if I sit and walk in silence for a couple of weeks. With that kind of openness, without an expectation of, I'm looking for this particular experience or I want to get enlightened or something. But just, let me just see what happens. Let me just see what's in the mind, if possible. So these visitors to the mind that I'm talking about, we all know what they are. They're the hindrances. The classical hindrances to practice. The classical hindrances to openness of mind, to understanding and deep insight. Dullness, sleepiness is the first. The second is doubt. Doubt about the teachers, doubt about the practice, doubt about your own abilities, doubt about everything. What to do next? The third is aversion in one of its many forms, disliking our experience, Uh, anger at our experience, anger at ourselves, frustration with our experience. That's a pull of pushing away from what's actually happening, or disappointment boredom, fear of uh, experience is a real withdrawal from, not an engagement with. And so aversion is a kind of, uh, eh, it's a, not ubiquitous, but it is certainly present a lot in our practice. 
restlessness, anxiety, and worry is the fourth. And the fifth is the wanting mind. Craving, attachment, desire, wanting something other than what's happening right now. You know, wanting the bell to ring before it actually rings to end the sitting, wanting more of those cinnamon rolls for lunch, whatever. Wanting mind. These five hindrances, we all experience them every day. It's really helpful to begin to understand that they are visitors to the mind. They're not who you are. They're like filters that drop over the mind and cloud our view of what's happening. They're not personal. They're not yours, so to speak. When conditions are there, they come. We can learn how to identify them, work with them, uh, not necessarily get rid of them, but understand them so that we don't get victimized by them, so we don't get manipulated by them. And when we do that, we learn how to decondition them as a response to and reaction to certain stimulus. So in that deconditioning, we actually transform our mind. We transform our personality. When we really see deeply into our habits and we you know, really rearrange them and uproot them and really uh, prevent or kind of control the uh, automatic arising of chronic uh, mental states. All these hindrances, they all arise due in part or associated with not seeing things clearly. And so, since they all arise with not seeing things clearly, of course, dullness and sleepiness, restlessness, desire, aversion. It's all because we don't see what's actually happening in its kind of with bare attention. And because of that, because they're all associated with that basic ignorance of what's going on, mindfulness or uh, uh, mindfulness, the power to observe and see things clearly is the antidote for all of them. All of these hindrances also ha have attendant with them some agitation or restlessness in the mind where the mind is not quite settled down. When the mind is settled down on the object in the moment, then we know it. When the mind isn't seeing things clearly, we're not quite on the object. We're a little bit around it, off to the side, kind of overshooting it, kind of not really with it as it's happening. And because that, then each of these mental states of aversion, doubt, restlessness, sleepiness, desire, they, the pain of them, the suffering of them, is that they fix a sense of who we are. I'm angry. I want this. I don't want that. I'm restless. I'm sleepy. And because these states fixate a sense of I, that's where we suffer. When we can see them as just a passing state in the mind, a mental state that appears, colors our view of the world for a while and disappears, when we see it that way, we don't fixate on it and say, I'm sleepy. We can see it as, oh, sleepiness is present. Desire is present. Aversion is present. 
not I am angry. When we can see that, when we can see these states of mind as just another passing show in the mind, we're free. We're really free from being tormented by them. In the course of our practice, of course, we don't see them. That's why practice is so difficult. That's why we you know, suffer with our practice. So I want to talk tonight a little bit about the different ways of, that we relate to these states of mind, from being totally lost in them to beginning to recognize them, beginning to open to them, beginning to balance them, you know, so that when you're restless, you bring in a little tranquility. When you're angry, you bring in a little loving kindness. When you're desiring, you bring in a little ability to let go. So that you bring in the balancing uh, factors of mind. We can learn how to replace these unpleasant, difficult states of mind. We can learn skillful reflections to uh, confront each of them. We can see that they too are impermanent. As we change our relationship to these states of mind, these visitors, then we really transform our consciousness. We can see through the smokescreen of their uh, obstruction. So the first that I want to speak about, and I won't get to all of them tonight, but whatever I don't get to, Kamala will speak to, speak of tomorrow. But the first that I want to speak about is sleepiness, dullness, sloth, torpor. In its gross form, we all know what that is. It's sitting like this. You know? And we're all familiar with that one. Of course, we're familiar when other people are like that. You know, if you're really getting bored with your practice sometime, just open your eyes, you know, and watch people in the hall for a while. And you'll get a great hit, a great a lot of fun sometimes to watch people in there, you know, bobbing and nodding. And That's its gross form. In its subtle form, it's really, it manifests as the ability to sit perfectly still, perfectly calm, perfectly soft and subtle asleep. <laughs> and we get good at it. I mean, you know, you kind of get this 50-yard gaze. <laughs> And you're not seeing anything closer than 50 yards away. <laughs> this is a subtle form of sloth and torpor, where, the, where the, the mind just really isn't active at all. It's just asleep, it's just numb, it's dull. Very dull. When this quality appears in the mind, the ability of the mind to know what's going on in the moment stops. It's paralyzed. It's like getting anesthetized. The mind's functioning stops. It just doesn't know anything. 
I mean, we can have our eyes open and we can, you know, and still not know anything. Mentally inert. When I talk about sloth and torpor, I'm not talking about physical sleep. I'm talking about mental sleep in this practice. Physical sleep is also mental sleep too, but I mean, it comes with it. But I'm talking about being physically alert, awake, or physically up, and mentally asleep. It's important to notice, to, to, to really distinguish, to acknowledge that that's possible. There are roughly, or generally, three kinds of, of dullness, sleepiness. And the first is a genuine tiredness. And often in the first couple days of retreat, when we come from our busy lives, where we're way overextended energetically, and we get here and there's nothing to do except sit on our dock. Well, often, you know, our, our tiredness catches up with us in the first couple of days, we are genuinely tired. And there's really not much you can do about it except kind of take a nap. But the first couple of days have already gone by, so a nap is no more, uh, <laughs> no more allowed. So the second kind of uh, dullness and sleepiness is, um, comes when, after we've done a little practice, we get started, and then things start to get difficult. You know, it doesn't go like we had hoped or planned. And, you know, the body starts aching, and, you know, it's noisy, and there's bugs, and, you know, the mind is chattering away. And, you know, it, it can get difficult. And in the face of difficulty, we just say, screw it, I'm not going to do this. You know, and we just kind of zone out. We say, this is too hard. I'm just going gonna, gonna, gonna to split, you know? And so the mind goes somewhere else. It just stops. When, it's, when we resist what's coming up, when we resist the act what's actually happening, whether it's difficult physically or difficult mentally or emotionally, when we resist it, we get tired. We zone out. We avoid dealing with what's coming up. Or we deny it. And in that struggle to not be with what's actually happening, we wear ourselves out. The third kind of dullness, sleepiness, is really not sloth and torpor exactly. It's rather an imbalance in our concentration and energy. The concentration comes because we're walking slow, we're sitting still for most of the day. And so we get very tranquil, we get very still, the body gets still, the mind gets still, we're not, we're not reading, writing, we're not distracting ourselves, the mind gets still in its own way, and we get quite tranquil. And our mind gets reasonably collected on, oh, just, you know, being with nothing special. You know, and so we just get quiet and still and calm and soft and subtle and quiet still. and we fall asleep we just the mind just goes out of paying attention and that's not really sleepiness it's because the concentration the stillness gets too great compared to the mental energy and the mental energy has got to be kept up equal to or reasonably close to our degree of concentration. And how are we going to keep our mental energy up? 
I'm saying mental energy because it's not physical energy. It's not always go for a fast walk is going to bring that energy back. We can be asleep mentally walking fast. So the mental energy that we need to raise is really the ability to recognize what's going on in each moment. So that when we get calm, still, quiet, soft, subtle, that's the quality. That's that's the experience that we need to know. We need to know, oh, this is calmness, stillness, tranquility, softness, quiet, quiet. And when it gets really soft and subtle like that, you've got to be really careful, really persistent, actually, to keep noting, to keep recognizing what's going on. Recognizing how quiet, still. You don't have to use words, but you've got to recognize it. You've got to uh, be mindful of the actual state of mind at that time. Keep the energy up. If you don't, the energy drops down and you drop into unconsciousness. Too much tranquility, imbalance. So, in any of these three kinds of dullness, sleepiness, mental inactivity, When we recognize it, when we're caught in it, we don't recognize it, we're just lost. But when we recognize it, then we have to work with it. Then we have to recognize this is our work for this period of time, in this sitting or or this walking. It's dealing with sleepiness. And the best way to deal with it is to acknowledge it, to just say, sleepiness is present, dullness is present. Putting if you can put, if you can recognize it and put a label on it, hang a tag on this experience, it helps tremendously. Because then you can see that it, it's just a state of mind. It's not who we are. It's not um, kind of a God-given thing that's never going to change. It's just, uh, it's just here for a while. But we need to recognize it and learn how to work with it in the, in the time that is present. Labeling helps. When we label it, when we identify it, then we can begin to work with it. Until we acknowledge it or recognize it, we can't work with it. If you don't recognize it, how are you going to work with it? So once we recognize it, acknowledge it, then we can work with it. We can sit up straighter if we're really slumped over. We can open our eyes. We can pull our earlobes. We can rub our limbs. We can mentally recite something, some chant that we know that keeps us awake. We can take a cold shower. We can walk faster. We can... These are all physical things to kind of build up some energy, something that keeps your mind active, that kind of stimulates uh, some activity in the mind. Not insight, but it's also helpful at times to reflect. Sometimes we just get lazy. Our dullness and sleepiness is actually a result of just laziness. We just forget what we're doing or why we're here or why bother. Why, you know, why don't I just go home and watch video or whatever? You know, and we just forget. And at that time, it's really helpful to, to reflect on why you're here. What, what it is you're actually doing. The nobility of trying to wake up, reflecting on 
the, the path of the Buddha, which we are also undertaking. Or reflect on your own death, that in fact we don't know when it's coming. And that can sometimes bring a sense of urgency. Whatever it is that you need to bring a sense of urgency to your practice so that now is the time to be practicing is helpful to, to kind of counteract the effect of sleepiness or, or laziness. I have to tell a story. Once I was in the forest of Thailand as a monk in a, in a little uh, village in a small monastery. And in this monastery, we went on alms round about 6.30 in the morning, and we walked through the village, and it was a very poor village. They grew, in this village, they grew uh, tapioca. And so we got sticky rice, tapioca, and ground-up meat every day. And that's about it. There's almost no vegetables and uh, uh, no, no fish or anything like that. It was just ground-up meat, heavy, sticky rice, and, and starchy tapioca. And so we would eat one meal at 8.30, and by 9 o'clock I had eaten for the day. And, you know, it wasn't until 8.30 the next morning I'd get to eat the same thing again. And you know, when you only eat once a day, you make sure you eat all that you're going to eat because you don't have anything else to eat for the rest of the day. So I used to eat quite a lot. And, uh, <laughs> and so when you eat a lot of meat, sticky rice, and tapioca, you get pretty, <laughs> you get pretty loggy, pretty heavy. And so by 9 o'clock the sun was up and uh, it was quite hot in the jungle. So my cootie was up on stilts. And the stilts were about seven feet high, six, seven feet high. So I'd stand underneath my cootie and I would do standing meditation for two or three hours while my food digested. And it so happened that I liked to be in the shade and so did the flies. And so the flies used to bother me and they used to fly around my feet and they'd land on my feet and legs, the part that showed below my robes. And so I kept a little, <laughs> I kept this little hand towel in my hand and as I'd standing there and they would kind of crawl all over my feet, I'd flick it. Standing, standing, flick, flick. Standing, standing, flick, flick. <laughs> and trying to <laughs> keep my energy up while this heavy food was digesting. Well, one day, I was flicking, flicking. And uh, then I felt something on my foot. You know, I was half asleep. Just kind of, <laughs> oh, okay. You know, I stood up because if I sat down, I certainly would fall asleep. And if I laid down, it was out for hours. Standing up, you've got to be a little careful. So, flick, flick. And then I felt this thing on my foot, and it didn't feel like a fly. So I opened my eyes and looked. And there was a snake about four feet long crawling over my foot. And needless to say, I moved quickly. And I had lots of energy the rest of the day. <laughs> because the snake went only about ten feet away up into a tree, right right outside my cootie. So, <laughs> I didn't know when he was going to come down and where he was going to go. So I was very alert for the rest of the day. Sometimes, you know, our sense of urgency is not so noble. It's just practical. <laughs> so, any of the techniques that I've talked about for dealing with sleepiness, note it, or whatever, all require that we 
uh, apply our mind, that we, that we get our mind moving, that we move our mind, that we start doing something rather than just sitting there passively. Huh? And so the main ingredient for confronting sleepiness is applying the mind, connecting the mind to what's actually happening. Very important. I better get at least two of these hindrances tonight. The second hindrance I want to talk about. <laughs> That's so funny. You didn't finish them at IMS either. Oops. <laughs> the second. <laughs> the second one I want to talk about is doubt. And it, when we come to practice, you know, we come here and we have some confidence in the Buddhist teaching and hopefully you've got a little bit of confidence in Kamala and I and you've got a little bit of confidence in your own ability to, to do this practice. And so we come with a lot of, or a little, hope and expectation and anticipation and, you know, belief and excitement. And then we hit the reality of the cushion. And it isn't so easy and it's a little difficult and gee the teachers didn't say what the last teacher said and I don't feel quite like it's this, the last retreat and gee this the book I read didn't say that we had to do this and why do I have to do that and suddenly our confidence is gone and in its way comes doubt is this is this what the way we're supposed to be doing it can I sit this way and and uh, Jeez, how do I know that what Steve said is the same thing that what Kamala said? They sound a little bit different. And when we get to this type of reflection, we stop practice. Because we don't recognize that this quality of mind is just doubt. When doubt comes, we do, we, it kind of pulls the plug on our ability to practice. So. What do we do on retreat when we start having doubts about the practice or the instruction that we're getting or the guidance that we're getting or our doubt about our own ability to, 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 to do this practice? Now is not the time to read books. Reading books is helpful and skillful when you're outside of retreat for getting inspired and getting instruction and getting guidance. But when you come on retreat, Hearing instruction from a couple of people, reading a couple of books, puts so much, um, it allows so much confusion to arise. Because we don't know. We don't know if what somebody writes in a book is true until we practice it for ourselves. We don't know that what we say, or you don't know that what we say is true until you practice for yourself and find out, is it so? And so it's helpful to put aside the books, put aside your other teacher's teachings, and to just do what we ask here, to just kind of follow these instructions and see how it is for you. If you spend your time comparing what one teacher said with another teacher and what one book said to another one, then you'll just be lost. You'll just be lost. So it's helpful to take... um, uh, for this period of time, and just put aside all of that speculation as best you can. And to just 
suspend your disbelief temporarily. Suspend your other practices temporarily. Without judgment, but just to put them aside and give this one a try. If you have questions about the instruction, if you have doubts about the instruction, if you have doubts about the practice, if you have doubts about your experience on retreat, then you should ask questions. And we give a couple of times a day and then private the interviews. Plenty of opportunity for you to clarify that level of doubt. But maybe the most undermining doubt is doubt about ourselves whether we have the capabilities, whether we're worthy, whether we have the right karma or whatever to do this practice. Because it's tough. I mean, we know. It's helpful to, when you recognize that you're having some wavering in your confidence, to identify that, to just say, okay, doubt is present. An insight would have us recognize doubt as being present and recognizing that we don't have to agree or disagree with that doubtful thought. Because if we agree, we're denying our doubt. If we disagree, we're buying into our doubt. In either case, doubt wins. We stop practice. So, the trick is to see that doubt is present and that it doubt poses this question. Do you know what you're doing? Are you able to do this? What do you do next? That's the question that doubt asks. And if you get caught in trying to answer it, your practice is stopped. And so the, the insight says, recognize what's actually going on. Acknowledge to yourself clearly what this moment's appearance in the mind is doubt. You don't have to answer the question. Do you know what's going on? Do you know if this is the right practice for you? Is this the best time of retreat? If you say yes, doubt will still come. If you say no, you've bought into doubt. Insight says, see it. Let it be there. Let it go. It won't stay forever. helpful again in the recognition of doubt to use the label to just take that word doubt and tag it onto that experience and just keep acknowledging to yourself that doubt is present doubt 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 so that you don't end up buying into the question sometimes with doubt there's a lot of fear what if this isn't the right practice? What if I'm doing it wrong? What if I can't do it? And there's a fear in that possibility that doubt poses. And so we need to see how doubt and fear also come together. 
in getting answers to doubtful questions from teachers, we should understand that it doesn't permanently uproot or take care of that doubt. It's like a temporary transfusion of someone else's confidence. My confidence in the Buddhist path or this path of practice, you can get kind of a, by osmosis temporarily to get you through a difficult time, through this difficult mental state of doubt. But somewhere down the line, as you continue in your practice, you will have to see through that doubt yourself and see through it by actually practicing through it. The, the response to doubt is not always uh, generating uh, excessive confidence. Because excessive confidence, uh, or you know, really strong confidence, if it isn't supported by our own understanding, by our own experience, by our own deeply seen reality, truth, then that confidence won't stand. It's, it's at the whim of the next charismatic speaker that comes around, or the next best-selling book that you happen to read. And so you really have to uh, do your own practice, develop your own understanding, see into your own reality, in order to come to that confidence which is unshakable, which isn't dependent on a teacher or a place or even a practice that is so confident, that, that is unshakable because of your own clear seeing. And for that, for that quality of understanding necessary to support unshakable confidence, we need a spirit of inquiry. And inquiry, investigation, is one of the seven factors of enlightenment, or one of the seven factors of an awakened mind. And it's also the factor that's most necessary in confronting doubt, to inquire deeply into what is going on. Not through reflection, not thinking about, I'm not talking about thinking inquiry, I'm talking about experiential inquiry. Feeling this moment, acknowledging what it is, feeling the next moment, acknowledging what it is, inquiring or investigating what's going on, what is this state of mind, what is this uh, uh, mood I'm in, what is this energy that's about me now. Looking closely, feeling deeply, investigating. It's investigation which most overcomes doubt, inquiry. I didn't understand for a long time in practice that confidence and doubt are kind of um, alternating experiences in practice. The path of practice is not one of just increasing confidence into the wild blue yonder, but in fact it is a little bit of confidence being challenged by a new doubt and a little more confidence overcoming that doubt 
being challenged by another doubt. One time when I was in Burma, after I'd been there about three years, a monk came to the monastery I was at who had been visiting in America, heard that I was there and asked to see me. I went to him and he couldn't speak English very well, I couldn't speak Burmese very well, but in our broken conversation he asked me, well, how long have you been here in this monastery? And I said, oh, about three years. And uh, he said, boy, he said, you must have a lot of confidence to stay here for three years and practice like this. And I said, well, sometimes I have a lot of confidence and sometimes I don't have any. And he said, oh, that's even better. And I asked him to explain, and he said that um, when you can recognize that you don't have any confidence, that you have a lot of doubts, and still practice, then that is the way to really overcome doubts. To find out for yourself, to keep practicing, even though you have doubts, not to buy into them, but to keep practicing and see how they resolve themselves through practice. It was really a powerful lesson to, to understand that um, doubt is, is a necessary part of practice. Questioning, deeply questioning, what am I doing here? Where am I going? Is this freedom? Is this the path of freedom? What's so special about this state of mind? Is this state of mind, is this freedom permanent? If it isn't, you need to continue practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.